Well, hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. And today is a day long time in the make, as you'll see in the episode. If you're new to The Sacred Speaks, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. Today, I bring you Father Richard Rohr. And I want to introduce him and get some housekeeping details, and we will get started. So to begin... Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar and ecumenical teacher. Father Richard Rohr bears witness to the deep wisdom of Christian mysticism and traditions of action and contemplation. Founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation, Father Richard teaches how God's grace guides us to our birthright as being made of divine love. He's the author of numerous books, including The Universal Christ, The Wisdom Pattern, Just This, and Falling Upward. You can find him on Twitter at Richard Rohr. OFM. So this uh, conversation was an enlightening, expansive conversation based on the book, reading the book, The Universal Christ, and the wisdom is endless, and I really feel grateful to Father Richard Rohr for your time and your presence. Um, You all watching and viewing this will understand how grateful I am because I didn't hold back on my gratitude. Um, but I'm also, to add this, I also want to thank Doug Lynham for, um, for your presence and, and willingness to help support this process. So thanks, Doug. Um, so again, get Richard Rohr at uh, the Center for Action and Contemplation, CAC.org. Check them out. They're doing a lot of great work. Uh, then as far as some updates, I would like to let you know, I, I think this episode will be out in time, uh, just in time. I'll be with Rodney Waters at Eslin doing a, a workshop on ecstatic experience, um, music, and Jung's Red Book. And um, that will be happening in February, so come on out. If you missed that one, I, we'll have another one probably later in the year. Um, but come on out to this one um, if you can. Uh, as always, we are sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative clinic that my wife and I started here in Houston. Check us out at thecenterforhas.com. Links below. Links of all this below. Uh, and a couple other uh, cool connections is Modern Nations. The music you hear on the podcast um, is from Modern Nations, and in particular, the music that you'll hear on the series that's coming up. I've got a lecture series that'll be coming up soon. Um, is by Nolan Teese, who's our uh, is a, is one member of Modern Nations. So as always, thank you, Nolan and Toby, and thank you, Nolan, for the work we're doing together. Um, modernnationsmusic.com. Um, also, just as a tip of the hat to the Young Center here in Houston, check us out at younghouston.org, J-U-N-G-H-O-U-S-T-O-N.org. And The Sacred Speaks, finally, the website is out. We are up and rolling, so check out thesacredspeaks.com. And soon, as I said, the series will be released. I won't say when because I'm tired of pushing the date back, um, but it's almost here or close. Um and, ah, yes, and the next episode I'm very excited about that I, I talked to uh, Dr. Jeff Kripal in a couple of days, but that episode will be out probably after Esalen, um, on his book, The Superhumanities. This book is blowing my mind, as Jeff always does. So if you don't know Jeff, check him out too. Jeff Kripal, he's been a big supporter of this project. And for now, we'll leave it there, and thank you, and I will bring you uh, a a well-anticipated interview uh, as far as I'm concerned. I've been waiting for this for a long time. So we'll leave it there for now, and uh, enjoy Richard Rohr. Thanks. (laughs) 
Father Richard Rohr, I have to thank you just at the outset here. And I'm sure you are, uh, actually I know for a fact you receive gratitude from the hearts and minds that you touch often. Um, so I'll just add my name to the list of people communicating that gratitude to you. This conversation is um, years in the make. Years ago, I had a fantasy about this conversation. Really? I did, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and so uh, I, I said uh, earlier, I, I, to, to create, to, um, to, to allow for these realities to become realities from the subtle body of the imagination into the concrete external reality to be here with you now is such a gift. And I just start with gushy and <laughs> gushy appreciation and, uh, and gratitude that you're here and that you've written all this work and, and touched so many lives. I, 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 I know I speak for, for many people when I say thank you for who you are and what you do. You're beautiful. <laughs> You're so generous with your love. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a uh, um, uh, you are too, and uh, and you, uh, it's received. I can tell. Um, so I I want to. I, I spent some time in your in your heart and your mind, and um, and I like I like being there. It's a good place to be. Uh, we when we talked about doing this conversation, we I noted to you about. Um, the Universal Christ, this beautiful book here, and also Adam's Return. Um, and so I wanted to, to set this up with three main pillars. And I, I'm going to throw a bit of a change up on you from where we started uh, when I sent you the email, uh, because I'd like to get into uh, the first half of life and talk about wounding and identity formation. Um, then get into second half of life and talk about how we uh, recollect what was dropped in our first half of life and kind of deal with the emergence of those wounds and, and lean into um, the potential of what you would call, I, I think, a Christ consciousness into our, into our second half of life. Uh, and then also talk a little bit about religion and what's happening in um, mm. religions right now. And um, so, but, but to begin, I want to start where you finished in this beautiful book, I took the jacket off because I, I love this. This is great. Um, I want to start with your commentary at the very end, Appendix 1, in your book, The Universal Christ. And it's so beautiful what you've written here about the four, four worldviews. Um, and I want to just go through for anybody. You, you write that there are four worldviews, the material worldview, the spiritual worldview, the incarnational worldview, and where's the fourth? I, I should have underlined it. Ah, the priestly worldview. Priestly, yeah. Yeah. Um, Which can we, we talk? Priests think is the worldview. <laughs> I, and it I, I saw myself a little bit in that uh, in that one. So yeah, I, I, therapist I, would yeah. often be. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I I, w I want to talk in general about worldview. I think it was so important that you included that part in uh, at the end here. And so just speaking about worldview. Uh, what that means to you, and then why you identified these four, four worldviews in particular. Well, the first thought, John, that comes to mind is that most people think the spiritual worldview is what we're trying to get them to, <laughs> and religion. 
organized religion. And uh, often that's the case. But even when you get them there, they still miss the big point, which is putting matter and spirit together. Because yeah. they think the goal is to be spiritual. Now, that's true of a lot of monks and nuns, too, mm -hmm. uh, who were still trying to be spiritual. However, they define that. It usually ends up being religious, not spiritual. Although they overlap, I would, I would think. So uh, do, do we need to give a quick explanation of all four? Or no? Sure. I, I, think, I, I think the cool, what I loved, I loved seeing this at the very end because I, I've started a number of retreats from this position of talking about how we need to be aware. Um, and I there's this fellow, if I could uh, shoot a tangent for a second, there's this fellow, Peter Kingsley, that wrote a book called Catafalque. It's a beautiful book. Um, oh, I saw it. Yeah, it's it's. I might even have it on my shelf. It's worth yeah. a read. Yeah, it's worth a read. Uh, I, I've I've probably talked a lot of it too much about this book. I, I'm, uh, it, it's wonderful. He actually says that we we talk all about these archetypes, but we never talk about the archetype of the human. And mm. this is this is getting a little far far further into my notes here, but um, you talked about imitation, and so we have this. I think first half of life point that we cultivate, the lens through which we see the world, and for us to actually be mindful that we all see the world through a particular lens. And you've enumerated these four that I, uh, you know, again, I saw myself in one of them, and I, you know, the <laughs> discomfort comes up a little bit. But, but yes, um, I, I would love to dive into this uh, with you. And so if we could start, let me turn to our page here that I've lost the marker for. Um, the material world view. Yeah. Uh, you know, we call it capitalism now, and I don't mean to be cruel, but uh, most Western people are materialists. How could they not be? Everything is in terms of buying and selling and uh, paying for and accomplishing, meriting. and um, So you, you tend to look at things in terms of what are they worth? What can they give me? And we stay on the surface of it for that reason. Naturally, we put in contradistinction to that spiritual world, which is to see, and it appears right, the inner meaning of things, the depth of things, the uh, interconnectedness of things. And we call that the spiritual world. Now, we in the what I call the priestly class there, therapists would be there with us. We think our wonderful job is to help people put matter and spirit together, mm -hmm. which are still <laughs> assumed to be separate. Mm -hmm. That's the whole thing. Uh, but by our cleverness, or in our case, our sacraments, we tell you that's not just bread, but it's Jesus. It's not just water, but it's baptism, whatever it might be. And we feel quite clever in doing that, and we are. But we would say it better if we would jump into the fourth worldview, which is saying matter has always been the hiding place for spirit. They've never been separate. Mm. 
you priests can't put them together. All you can do is change people's, what we'd call the epistemology, their way of seeing, their way of knowing. And once they know correctly, they'll see that matter and spirit are inherently connected. Now that's called the incarnational worldview. And I think as a, as a Christian, that is the Christian worldview. But the vast majority of Christians don't know it. Well, they still uh, attain the, the priestly worldview, or maybe the spiritual. It's funny you say that. I just spoke with a guy named Miles Neal about, uh, we titled the conversation coming down from the mountaintop. He's a Tibetan teacher oh. and you know Buddhist teacher. Yes. I, I, I've loved him since the moment we met. And he talked about how, certainly in, in, in mysticism, modern religions, um, meditative practice, contemplative practice, psychedelics that are happening, that people are becoming obsessed with the non-dual, with their, they're moving into the, the mystical and becoming, um, th they believe that that is the, the answer. And, and he was emphasizing what Joseph Campbell emphasized, the need to come back, and certainly what you all emphasize at the Center for Act uh, Action and Contemplation, to, to engage, to be socially engaged. And so I love that you set this up in the beginning on materialism and spirituality, because we're certainly going to talk a lot about dualism today. Good. You, you've got it already, I think, because you didn't need me to say all that. You inherently understand it, I think. I, I, I try. You know, but I have that part of me. I, I, I mean, because in, in, in honesty, I, I relate with all four of these, and I'm biased to all four of these. Oh, that's such an honest way to say it. Thank you. No, that's good. If I were honest, I'd say it too. <laughs> I think you're pretty honest, Richard, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, I think that, no, thank you. That's good. Yeah. So the materialism piece is, um, the other, the other piece that I think is important is what the sciences are doing around reductionism and, and kind of reducing our, and Jung talks a lot about this, reducing our experience of reality into its constituent parts and not experiencing the whole, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and that's really the work of healthy religion is to help you experience the whole, not just God as a separate item, but the wholeness that God creates. Uh, as I think I say in that book, for me, God is another word for reality. And it's giving reality a face mm. I can relate to, I can talk to, that I can engage with. You said uh, the shape of God. You said that in a video that I watched, and I love that, the shape of God. Which is for a Christian trinity. Yeah. Is that where I talked about it? You talked about it in a lecture on the universal Christ, and I, I just thought that oh. concept was, you know, the. You you talk a lot about this, the attempt, the, the many attempts that we have to, to, put God in an image. Yes. How how did you how did you come to all this? Like what what's your process through all this, Finnevale? Well, you've come to it, or you couldn't understand it so well. Uh, it's just, you know, I, 
I started young. I became a novice at 19. And so my formative years, even while I was studying philosophy and theology, were already inside a container of Franciscanism, which was inherently sacramental. You know, brother, son, sister, move. Uh, Is that the uh, language you all use? Oh, sure. Wow. Oh, oh, you didn't know that. Okay. You know, brother, Francis wrote the first piece of Italian poetry. At least they claim that in Italian literature. And it's the canticle to brother, son. It's a beautiful piece of uh, Italian poetry still today. So he, he, he was a cosmologist. He, he was living inside the hole and loved every part of it. Animals, everybody associates him with animals, but it's true. If you read his earliest biographies, every animal is another manifestation of something about God. Um, good stuff. Well, I, I had this thought just as you were a curiosity about, uh, do, you, do you remember any the dreams from your childhood? And I, I mean that in terms of what did you dream uh, about as aspirational, but also like nighttime dreams. Oh, aspirational for sure. Not a lot of lifetime dreams. Yeah. Living, um, I mean, sleeping dreams. Yeah. I don't remember a lot of those. I think it's because at that age, I was told they didn't mean anything or they weren't important. So I discarded them. It was only really when I began to do pro-golf weekends, study Carl Jung, <laughs> that and I... And dialogue with yourself. Yes, exactly. You never stop smiling. What a good <laughs> It makes it so easy to talk to you. I love people who smile. Thank you. You're a you're a, a smile inspiring inspiring person. <laughs> I'll I'll gush with you <laughs> on my better days. Yeah. <laughs> Amen, man. Well, ch childhood with um with your with your dreams. What did you aspire and dream about? You know, at 19 and to start to become a uh, in uh, the calling of 19, a friar, that's a, that's a commitment. Well, remember, I was born in 43. I'll be 80 in a few weeks. And uh, 43 allowed me to grow up in the what we call the old Catholic Church, hmm. before Vatican II, before we became more critical and rational in our thinking. And there were some good parts to that. It was very mythological without knowing it. Mm -hmm. Our churches, as you probably know, are filled with statues and images. And uh, when you go to European Catholic churches, you can just spend a whole day reading the images on the walls. They're everywhere. So it, it uh, stirred the imagination. And... Uh, that's what I wanted to tell people about. And at that time, the only way to do that was to become a priest, where you so had the authority to talk about such things. Say more about that, what you wanted to tell people about. That, that there was an inner meaning to everything. 
and everything was a symbol. And, uh, and most of all, that everything was good. Now, I was favored in that by having two good parents. Um, they weren't perfect, but they were good. <laughs> good enough, as they say now. And so it gave me a positive view toward reality. It wasn't a scary world. It wasn't a, a penal world of punishment. Uh, it was uh, an attractive world. And that's Franciscanism to the core. We didn't emphasize original sin. But as Matthew Fox says, original blessing, or I say original goodness. Hmm. That's a very different starting place. Yeah. And yeah. I don't mean to be anti anything. Let's say John Calvin. Or even Martin Luther, and I love Luther, but uh, their terrible parenting, I blame it all on that, led them to a very negative theology that, you know, uh, it wasn't a, a good or a safe world. It was an ungood, an unsafe world. And that's affected most of Western Christianity. Um, not that we Catholics did it right, but it, but the good thing about being Catholic is it presents you, as I was presented with and given good Catholic studies, a very broad, broad spectrum of teachers, philosophers, theologians. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for wisdom, it's there. You know, tomorrow's the feast of Thomas Aquinas. Now, we're not supposed to like him because he's a Dominican and they were our competitors. But, uh, my God, the guy was uh, first rate, just first rate. His ability to see things in the 13th century. So at 19, you were reading this material and digging in. You had the energy for that. Yeah, now I'm not into Aquinas yet. I'm still a pious Catholic boy. Remember the <laughs> <laughs> pure the change was this phenomenon called the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. You've heard of that from yes. 1963, 62 to 66, those four years, and that turned everything Catholic on its head. It's one of the few examples in history of an institution reforming itself from the inside. So much so that 50 years later, a lot of the laity haven't accepted it because it's so different. It's a different worldview. It's a sacramental worldview. Say more. Uh, we, we don't have time or energy for being anti-Protestant, anti-Hinduism, anti-anything. It takes a lot of energy. Uh, it, it wastes a lot of energy <laughs> trying to find what's wrong. Oh, yeah. I remember I asked, oh, they're working on my porch. Is that sound going to bother you? No. No. Okay. Um, I remember when I first explained Franciscan philosophy to Matthew Fox, who's a Dominican by training. 
And I said, did you study our men at all, Bonaventure and Ben Scotus? And, and he said, no, that we only learned them to, to prove how they were wrong. <laughs> uh, that you sounds know. Like, a, like an unhealthy marriage. <laughs> wow, a common marriage. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, amen to that. Oh, and we spent much of our uh, church history to prove how orthodoxy and Protestantism were wrong. Mm. What a terrible beginning place, you know? Because, uh, I mean, orthodoxy maintained the contemplative, sacramental, universal salvation worldview much better than Catholicism did. But we never found that out because we never studied them. They were just wrong. <laughs> what a loss. What a loss. Now, I admit the ordinary Orthodox on the corner doesn't learn that anymore. But it's in the Orthodox Eastern Fathers. That's where you find it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, you, I, Same I, I, as Protestantism. It's just... So rich once you meet real Protestants. But we were so big, the Catholic Church and our schools and our universities, we never had to meet a Protestant. <laughs> you could just live your whole life <laughs> in a little Catholic bubble, you know, where everybody was father and brother and sister, and it was very sweet. Hmm. That's not people's experience of... No. Catholicism or Christianity today. Sure isn't, no. But I, I like that you set this kind of parental imago up, that that there's, a, you said once in your book about when you have a a wrathful, shaming, punitive God, you we, we can we can look at family systems and see what happens when that's the parent. Oh, yeah. I mean, Hitler had a father who physically abused him. Mm -hmm. People might say, oh, that's too simple, but the pattern is there. People who had penal punishing parents almost prefer a penal punishing God. They know what game to play, understand, uh, with this kind of God, like even that. though he or she is toxic. And, um, it's going to take another thousand years if we last that long mm -hmm. to get us beyond the penal, wrathful God. It's what most people believe, unless they're mystics. Mm -hmm. The mystics are those who've discovered it ain't true. <laughs> Thank God it ain't true. But they're always a minority in every group. Well, go with that for a second. Well, the mystics are... What ain't true? Uh, that God is wrathful. Yeah. God is penal. God is making a list and checking it twice and going to find out who's naughty or nice. I mean, that makes total sense to most Protestant and Catholic Christians in the West. It never occurred to them it could be anything else. And so they don't anymore spend their life trying to please that God, they just absent themselves. Mm. And the thinking people, I, I think I'm being fair in saying this, more sensitive types 
are all just leaving Christianity in droves. And they're not angry. They're discovering. Mm -hmm. It's very different. Yeah, they yearn for something. And it's true in every denomination. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My biggest single demographic, and this surprised me more than anybody that read my books, are evangelical young Protestants, mm -hmm. males especially, because of my men's work. Yeah. Uh, but the Catholics think I'm a heretic. Yes, they do. Yeah. <laughs> it's one reason why I like you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I like to, as I like you to know, hang out with heretics. In June, the Pope Francis invited me to a conversation. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm not. But he and I share the same broad notion of Catholicism. He was Jesuit trained. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We just got good Catholic educations. The typical layperson in the corner parish of St. Bridget's just doesn't get that. They're told to pay, pray, and obey. And that's not my... <laughs> Much of an oversimplification. Oh, I'm, I'm making that T-shirt though. <laughs> <laughs> now you weren't raised Catholic, were you? No. No. Methodist. Oh well, they're the nice Christians. <laughs> I, you know, at least in I just Kansas, remember donuts. That's all. Everybody was Methodist. Yeah. I grew up next to a Methodist church, and I'd hear their pretty hymns come through the windows. Yeah. On Sunday morning, we were told, don't listen, those are heretics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a seed to plant. I know, what a terrible, terrible. You know, I have a lot of stories of people that I work with, because of my interests, and I guess because of my interests, I end up working with a lot of um, spiritually wounded people. And I, I can't tell you how often I hear stories about somebody that goes into their communion or their they're in their early classes and they're questioning, just asking questions. And they are told basically, you can't do that here. No, no. That's a sad reality. You're familiar with spiral dynamics, aren't you? Uh, enough to say it's somewhat. Here. Just <laughs> yeah. remember, most of us who were raised in the church before the, the last 20 years, uh, we were what they call blue level. The blue level only works, works rather well, if you allow no self-criticism. <laughs> if there's all homogeneity. Oh, man. That's why Hitler could make, I mean, I'm 100% German, so I can say this. Hitler could make Nazis out of Catholics and Lutherans. Mm -hmm. It was just changing the belonging system from one to another. Because what you had to have was a belonging system. And uh, see, the blue level is what was deconstructed at Vatican II, hmm. where it's all homogeneous agreement of like-minded people. Why would anybody want to leave that? It's so happy. I mean... There's no cynicism. I, I grew up with no cynicism. 
And the seminary, all we did was laugh. We joked and made fun of ourselves and the priests and little thinking we were training to become one. But self-criticism was built in because it was kind Mm -hmm. self-criticism. Yeah, I was laughing at my own group and its own eccentricity. That works. But it grows you up real quick because that self-criticism soon becomes strong self-criticism of your own group. And that, for my lifestyle, coincided with the 60s. I'm studying philosophy in the early 60s. I'm studying theology in the late 60s. And I just grew up as an American because we were, you know, criticizing America. And we Catholics were given permission by the mid-60s to criticize the Catholic Church. It was easy to grow up for me. Did you feel, uh, were you involved in the counterculture? Was that? Oh, yes. I had hair down to here. (laughs) Should have seen how nice I looked. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, hair down to there. Nice goatee and mustache. and uh, Oh, my. It was wonderful. Uh, It was really wonderful. And uh, I just thought, well, everybody born after me is going to jump on board. This is so wonderful. Hmm. They didn't have the background I had to hold, to provide the container Hmm. that I call the first half of life. Old Catholicism, if it was healthy, gave you a container to deal with complexity, with diversity, it was good stuff. That's but crazy. now the young priests, for example, I mean, they think I'm just going to hell. Yeah, they do. They're all back into blue conformity, homogeneity, mm-hmm. no talk of diversity. Uh, I don't know how God's going to sort this out. Well, I, I want to quote you for a second. First of all, I want to highlight a, a phrase, just these two words, changing the, be- the belonging system. I, I really like that belonging yes. system. And that, that has power in it. And obviously, if you're um, somebody like Hitler and you just shift the symbols and change go. the orientation, you've, you've got a bunch of diehards. Um, and also, I, I appreciate this uh, conversation on the blue level. Um, so I, I want to quote you here, which is, seems to be on, on our theme here. Um, I've never been separate from God, nor can I be, except in my mind. That's right. The only thing that separates you from God is the thought that you're separate from God. And that's our job, to get people away from that thought. And by beginning with sin... Usually we did. Why you were a sinner. Um, We made people even hold on to it stronger. I am separate from God because I have sinned. It just doesn't work. 
Yeah, it's heartbreaking. I know you've seen this because I, I certainly have. The woundedness that happens as a result of that thought pattern, that, that separating thought pattern, that, and then of course shame fills the gap. Shame. Yeah. The guilt that's created, created guilt, because the group agrees. You know, like it was such a breakthrough the other day when Pope Francis said, being homosexual is not a crime. Yeah. He says, oh, yeah, it's a Thank sin, God. but not loving your neighbor is a sin, too. He adds that real quick. <laughs> the guy is a genius. Genius. <laughs> he knows how to toe the party line and yet undo it from within. Wow. You know? Yeah. And you're, uh, you're, you're, you're smitten with him. That's good. Oh, yeah. 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 So, I mean, to wait your whole lifetime for a pope that you agree with. <laughs> it's just a wonderful thing as a Catholic. What what was it like to have an audience with him? Heartbreakingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. I, I walked through 13 ballrooms with Renaissance art and medieval art and uh, contemporary art on the ceilings, the walls, the marble floors. And I've got Swiss guard on each side of me marching with me. And I'm in my Franciscan robe. And about the fifth ballroom, he must be so embarrassed to live there. But I uh, <laughs> I said to uh, the Swiss guard, I didn't know if they knew English. But I said, can we change outfits? I don't know if you've seen what the Swiss guard wear. It was designed by uh, Michelangelo, you know? They yes. still wear the same costume. It's really quite impressive. Yeah. I said, I'm sort of dowdy in my brown robe. Can we change? They stopped immediately. They hit their uh, halyards on the ground. They turned and saluted me. And I said, what does that mean? They couldn't. And the guy from behind said, they're not allowed to talk to you. Going, going or coming to meet the Pope. Mm. But they salute you. To let you know, we heard that you talked to us, but we can't talk back. <laughs> we finally get to the doors of his, what I expect is going to be another ballroom, and it is. But they open the two doors, and he's he scooted over in his wheelchair across the huge room. And he's right there looking up at me, and I just squealed like a little teenage girl. He said, oh, my God, you're, I'm looking down at him. You're the Pope. He said, well, of course I'm the Pope. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. He said, come in, come in, shut the doors. And we talked. It was wonderful. What a gift. He's very empathetic. Yeah. His eyes never left mine, the whole conversation. Now, part of that is he had to read the lips Hmm. To follow the English. English, of course, is not his first language, but yeah. Now we're talking about all kind of other things that you wanted to talk to me about. I so know. I was laughing about that. I was like, it's gonna be funny when I don't get to any of my notes and I'm just having this lovely conversation with you. <laughs> you're lovely. Yeah. I uh, think you. You. um so so let's do that. Let's let's go back. I 
I do have a couple of things that I want to um, okay. that I do want to get to, and in part I want to set this up in a way that says, okay, so I know you've written about this: the first half of life, second half of life. Yeah, it's so interesting. In your second half of life, you get to complete some kind of dream that I'm sure you never even knew you could have at 19, of having an audience in Rome with the Pope talk yeah. about wild experiences. Yeah. So if we could say that first half of life, second half of life, in a different way, oftentimes what happens in our first half of life is we have to adapt to the world. And That's right. that, that usually is not in line with what we would saw, say is kind of the, our true, our, our, our true oh. self. Or, Hardly ever. Hardly ever. So you quote the false self that is uh, that emerges as a result of this process necessity of uh, adaptation that we go through. Um, and so what would you say about, as we're setting that up around first half of life, and you've worked a lot in particular with men and initiation, and I want to throw this lobbed ball out there about all this as it relates to wounding and personality formation. What you do, and I want to say you in many ways have to do, is create an attractive persona, which is always limited by your culture, your family, your nationality, your degree of education, your, where you are in the class system. All those things tell you, how can I look good? How can I succeed? How can I win friends and influence people? <laughs> Why would you not do that? You know? Yeah, yeah. Why would you not? God understands that. Uh, now, that's probably why the Catholic Church so emphasized saints and lives of the saints and statues and pictures of saints to create some other models than people fighting wars or w winning the lottery. Do you understand? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That'd be what you'd keep choosing. So we got to be honest. Luther was right. We Catholics didn't read the scriptures very much. We uh, read Lives of the Saints. They were much prettier, you know? And uh, But what they were doing, I only realized this, in my late age, is they were creating a different persona that we strove after. Mm -hmm. um, Leon Blois, the, the French uh, writer, said, there's only one sadness in life, only one, not to be a saint. Mm -hmm. Now that's the kind of thinking we grew up with, mm -hmm. with the good nuns. Only one sadness, only one. Not to be a saint. Can you? You can, of course, imagine. No easy task. How how that created a very different. Yeah. Searching for identity. Um, but anyway, my I think yeah. what you wanted me to talk about was why we choose the false self. First of all, mm. largely have to. And that's why until there's a a disillusionment, a deconstruction of the false self, there's no reason not to stay there. You just mm -hmm. keep building. I mean, I meet men my age 
who are still trying to make money. I'm just going to put it that way. Mm -hmm. On. <laughs> who are still trying to find the perfect sexual partner or something. Uh, hmm. Build a, a trophy home or a trophy wife. Or looking for a trophy. <laughs> trophy anything. A anything, yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't resent them. Uh -huh. I realize no one initiated their movement. And that's what initiation is, by the way, from the first half to the second half of life. I watched a show on the Holocaust the last couple nights, including um, Ken Burns' new mm -hmm. documentary. And what I kept seeing in my German countrymen was there were no elders. Mm. There were no... Already in grade school, they put little uniforms on. All militaristic. Mm. Yeah. And I know this is true because of the, I gave the initiation rites in German-speaking countries at least 10 times. And the rage, I don't know what other word to use, of the young German men toward their fathers and grandfathers. It's just... You wanted to get out of the room. It hurts so much. Because of uh, their, their hunger to be yeah, guided and loved? To, to, be, to be mentored, uh, yeah. to be given wisdom. And the first time I spoke in a, the cathedral in Nuremberg, one guy stood up and he said, we killed all of our grandfathers in the First World War. Then we killed all of our fathers in the Second World War. And then he said this with the deepest sweet respect. He said, Father, just the way he said it. He said, we welcome you here tonight because you have finally helped us understand our disappointment with men mm -hmm. and why we want to do it differently. You could have, as we say, you could have heard a pin drop in that cathedral. We just stunned to silence by the truth of what he'd spoken. And when I watched these Holocaust shows the last few days, I just said, how come no one saw through this phony Hitler? How come? How could so, you know, we consider Germans, no offense, the best educated, best IQs in the world. And it's it's not hard to believe when you go there. They're just so damn smart. Mm -hmm. And yet, look where it happened. These damn smart people who had no good masculine energy to see through the false masculine energy. Can we stop a second? So, uh, lead you, me where I would rather were, not. Oh. I was feeling emotional. And you were talking about this father loss and father hunger. Yes. And, and what the thought that I had was something I've talked about before here on the podcast is, and I don't know if this is true, but I'm sure it gets to the point, which is 80% of gang members and people in prisons are fatherless. Oh, tell me. It's, I was a jail chaplain for 14 yes. years. Yeah. I can't remember a guy in the jail who had a good father. 
I can't remember. So, so men want to matter to their fathers. Deeply. Yeah. Much more. And, and if their father doesn't provide an icon that they can worship, mm-hmm. they'll worship a athlete mm-hmm. or a rock star. I mean, look at their faces when they meet famous people. Um, it's just your seventeen-year-old is very lucky. Tell him I said so. <laughs> He'll listen to this. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the uh, the vote of confidence, Richard. But I, it 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 brings up another quote from you that might. I mean, I want to stick in this because I think it's so important. The yeah, I, I actually I don't want to go there yet because it. I wanted okay. to talk to you about forgiveness. Because if we're going to have this lack, and I want to broaden this out, not just with fathers, but with all human beings, that Jung said something like, uh, I don't wish the perfect parent on anybody. And on some level, he's saying, like, we all all are raised by humans, and we project divinity onto them if if we're lucky. That's right. And then they don't, they're not able to carry that. But at least we had a repository for that potential that's inside of us to uh to create the icon you know to to worship that icon so uh, inevitably we will be hurt um, because fathers fall and mothers fall and we all fail so there will be wounding and something i work a lot with is forgiveness and i've noticed this is totally in my own clinical practice this is a selfish and yeah, it's from my own interest, and I'm so eager to talk to you about this because you're the perfect person to do so. Forgiveness is tough for people. They don't want to forgive. They feel like they're giving up something or they're giving in. And I notice that whether it's um, somebody who has suffered the loss of a child that took their own life, you know, that the parent that suffers that on some level hates reality can't forgive the nature of reality. reality. They, right. they struggle with anger at their child. They struggle with their partner. They struggle with their friends. If somebody has an infidelity in their marriage, they years after, they are still resentful. And, and so I, I want to bring up, as we're talking about forgiveness, I want to quote you from the Brene Brown episode. Because uh, my team that I work with, my clinical team, I immediately walked in the office and wrote this on the dry erase board. You said the hour-by-hour practice of gratitude is the only practice that can withstand the temptation to resentment. And I think these two things go together, forgiveness and resentment. And I'm curious if we can talk about forgiveness as a way to uh, connect deeply with the wound and free yourself. So what, what comes up for you there? Let me try this avenue. I'm not sure it's the best. Okay. I'll make it short. So <clears throat> when you set up the gospel so that it's an achievement contest, a performance principle by which to please God and earn God's love, forgiveness throws a, a wrench in the works. I, I shouldn't have couldn't have done anything wrong uh, that deserves or needs needs forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So forgiveness isn't part of the equation. I, 
I think it's almost holy stuff. I think it's almost the whole gospel. Oh God, the back porch, the front porch, the Spanish visitor, <laughs> the dog. Uh, see, forgiveness implies that there's something that needs forgiving. Mm -hmm. And we've tried all our life uh, to be good, to be perfect, to do it right, to follow the rules, put it however you want. Um, the, the version of Christianity that most of us were given is what I now call you can write this down if you want, because this isn't in any of my books yet. Is a, was a cult of innocence. Mm -hmm. Cult of innocence. You can put it together. How can I be innocent and prove I was right? I didn't sin. The schizophrenia and the blaming, scapegoating. Oh, yeah. Always someone else's fault. Always. And that's most people. Because the only way I can remain innocent is to belong to the perfect Christian group, follow its rules perfectly, and find out who put the note of imperfection in this perfect world. So forgiveness is not considered important or necessary. But you look, you you could say, without exaggerating, we had time to go through the four gospels. Jesus does two things. He heals and forgives. Heals mm -hmm. and forgives. And the healing is illustrating the forgiving. That's your home ministry. You don't need to call it that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, we, did, we actually made forgiveness less common by saying only the priest could do it. You understand? So the husband and wife didn't do it to one another. They had to go to father and tell father that they weren't didn't love their husband. What good does that do? You understand? And I've heard enough confessions. It's like, okay, you've spent 40 minutes talking about your husband. <laughs> How terrible he is. Did you have any part in that whatsoever? And they get stone silent on the other side. It's seldom confessing their own sins. It's whoever has done them wrong. Mm. Heartbreaking. Yeah. So now, saying, when you point this out to some people, you do it lovingly and kindly, they can hear it. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say it's the majority. It's hard. Yeah, very hard. I mean, that to, to me, it, there's a, I like what you're saying, and that it's a function of how you frame your own discomfort. That if if I am if I'm experiencing discomfort and I need to be perfect, then that energy needs to be projected out onto others, and so I get involved in the blame game. There you go. Yeah. It's like an exhaust system. All the shit yeah. gets to come out. Yeah, you get it. I, I I hope. Well, I'm I'm a I'm a humble, uh, flawed human being that um, can certainly talk about certain things, but when it all plays out, there. Are, <laughs> me too yeah. <laughs> Same way. I'm better at talking about it I yeah. should ask some Mexican here if 
if I'm as good as I talk, <laughs> keep, keep telling you the truth. <laughs> well, I I do want to be respectful, Richard, of your time, and so I'm I'm I have to I have a couple other things I want to get to. Are we good for a few more minutes? Yes, go ahead. Okay, good. I'm, I'm gonna get upset if I don't. Don't worry. You you can I love it. I love you it. Can, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, you're digging in. Good. Yes. Yeah. It's good. Uh, good to come and sit in this beautiful chair over there, and let's. Uh, so, um, yes, we'll sit in this chair. We're we're talking about uh, we're talking about the act of forgiveness, and and something yes. that I think oftentimes happens in the second half of life because we need to recollect what was amputated and cut off and hurt and wounded, and have a praxis that remembers that what we imagined in our first half of life, in our achievement strategies, in our building phase, we move into more of an inner reality so that we can start to recognize that these these uh, threads that we're hanging on to, we're clinging on to, the resentments and the, I guess there's the resentments, you know, that, that we actually need to drop those. So what we're seeing right now in this, I guess, in my world, I, I've studied this. I, I like psychology and depth psychology, and certainly as a clinician, I've been very interested in watching the world of psychedelics and how we're how we're what's what's what we're curing and what what's happening in this wild time. And so, for you to be a guy who was raised somewhat in the counterculture and the Catholic Church, and you know, visiting with the Pope, you know, I know you've made contact with uh, Brian Marescu's book, The Immortality Key. Oh, yeah. I interviewed I him. I Brian himself. Well, yeah. He's, yeah. I, inter I interviewed him a while ago, and I, I, he's, a, well, he's a wonderful speaker on this subject. But that book just captivated so many people. So from your, if you'll put your religion theology hat on, what are your thoughts about what's going on in the world of psychedelics and religion and uh, therapy, you know, healing? Uh, where do I start? Um, it's amazing. I mean, I have two letters right here in this stack. I'm trying to get to both bring out the question of psychedelics. Mm. And they're both very mature. One is a Protestant minister um, from Canada. Uh, what psychedelics can offer is a shortcut to unitive experience. Hmm. Now you've got to have a good guide to tell you what to pay attention to. In fact, in my limited experience of psychedelics, as, as I was processed on it afterwards, I really now they'll like this. I said, this was wonderful. And I'm not trying to appear superior, but I've had more consoling experiences at prayer. Mm. Prayer in my life has been the ultimate fix. Um, I don't mean intercessory prayer. I don't mean complaining to God prayer. I mean the prayer of union, where there's a dialogue going on and someone is listening and someone is speaking back. Mm. Uh, that was the mushrooms times 10, you know. Uh, so I couldn't idealize the mushrooms, but I couldn't call them bad anymore either. 
even though people would deeply mistrust me if I let them know I had done such a thing. Uh, so I don't talk about it very much, but I think God wanted me to have it because I spiritually direct and counsel so many people. And today, it's many of the more mature people who are doing this experimentation. Not always, but many. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to discourage them. I want to encourage them and help them integrate it. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's one of the best friends religion has. And so many indigenous religions, ayahuasca, right. uh, the native peoples knew. And they call it a sacrament. Maybe they didn't use that word, but treated it as if it were a sacrament. This is good stuff. And I'm really glad that it's now in the hands of thinking, reputable people more and more, like Brian. He, I took him with me on my visit to the Pope. I don't know if he told you that. I did. He, yeah, he was in the little group behind the Swiss guard That's marching up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am fond That's of That's very brief, but you got the gist of it, I hope. I did, yeah. I did. It, I, it's just encouraging because I, also another name, um, uh, somebody who will be in the podcast in a couple of weeks is Hunt Priest. Who's oh, isn't he lovely? Lovely, lovely he, person. For everybody out there, Lagare is is his community, and I, I I don't see how it could be any other way. We need we need religious the religious container. That's it. That's it. If we abandon it like we usually do and call it sin too quickly, <laughs> we just miss out. Well, and I'll I'll punctuate that with uh, with something that I did want to read earlier because this was when you you watched the Murray Stein episode and you know Jung had a pretty um, mix. Yeah, he was Murray is fantastic. Um, he we talked openly because in the Red Book, Sanusham Dasani quotes Jung saying something about uh, mescaline, and when he was out in New Mexico, he was talking about mescaline and how he used the he likened the experience of act imagination to the mescaline experience where you're encountering these unconscious aspects of your self, you know, capital S. Spiritual satisfactions feed on themselves, grow by themselves, create wholeness, and finally their own reward. Material satisfactions, while surely not bad, have a tendency to become addictive because instead of making you whole, they repeatedly remind you of how incomplete, needy, and empty yes. you are. Oh, I'm glad I wrote that. I forgot I wrote that. You Thank did. you. Well, and I think the reason why I just want to, as we're as we're finishing, just offer that is that we we can't be in a binary state of um, orientation. You know, it is not either or. You are either using or addictive or not. The sure. way in which people approach these experiences deserve respect, deserve presence, deserve mindfulness. And deserve to use your word, a container, and we're we're building those. People are building those containers, and God. I just if you'll comment, uh, please. I think you know the hatred of 
the liberals that we see in our politics today uh, is this fear among conservatives that liberals don't have any container. Mm-hmm. There's no boundaries. There's no limits. There's no holding it together till it integrates. And in that, they're partially right. Uh, the resistance of the liberal thinker to boundaries has not helped them be appreciated. Our belonging systems, mm-hmm. most of them are individualists. They have no belonging system whatsoever. So I do think the Franciscans did it for me, and believe it or not, the Catholic Church did it for me. Now, about to turn 80, I, please hear this rightly, I, I don't feel I need either one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so arrogant. I don't need Franciscans. I don't need to be Catholic. Yeah. But I sure thank them, and I'm grateful to them for all they have held together inside of me. And... Um, You know, is it Ken Wilber who talks about transcend and include, Mm. transcend and include. The more you transcend, the more you can include. That is my life experience. Mm. But you're not codependent on it anymore. And the wonderful thing about talking to the Pope about this is that he understands that. (laughs) How many popes have ever understood that Catholic isn't the be-all and the end-all. He does. And they're crucifying him because of it. Like saying homosexuality is not a crime. How dare he? I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure Catholics all over the world are, are ready to dethrone him. Anyway. Well, I I will just push up against in a loving way that your, your comment on your arrogance. I think the Buddha said, when you reach the shore of enlightenment, don't take the boat that got you there with you. Wow, I've never heard that line. Yeah. Don't take the boat that got you there with you. Yeah. That's what we most do. Mm-hmm. And why I love Jesus is he didn't. You know, he critiques Judaism till the very end mm-hmm. while still remaining a good Jew. It's really amazing, amazing. Well, I am eternally grateful and just need to remark how easy you are to love. So thank you for your time today, Richard. It's truly a gift. How can we reproduce people like you? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, John. We will talk again, right? I I, I wait for it, definitely. Keep that beautiful smile. And tell your son, what's his name? River. River, you named him River 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. That was courageous. <laughs> well, much God love. Bless you, yes, blessings to you. And I we will we'll uh, talk again. I'll I'm going to call Doug in Santa Fe and tell him I agree. <laughs> oh, well, wonderful. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Be well. Keep doing good. Oh